It's so good to see you today and to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and to welcome you to church, uh, even those by way of, of live stream who may be getting a head start on uh, the holiday weekend, but good to see your faces. And we begin a new study this morning, the book of Esther. I know some of you have... Uh, Got your scripture journals ready uh, for taking notes and so forth. Those things uh, are quite handy. But we will be in the book of Esther, most likely through the next holiday, uh, Labor Day. This will be our summer series, and we'll be looking on Wednesday nights here and there on some things that uh, I guess we don't have enough time for having to do with Esther during the, uh, the summer But this morning, I'm happy to be able to begin this, and uh, I hope for you it will be uh, one of these situations where it's a familiar story, at least if you've grown up in church, and we remember this from Sunday school as children, but it's kind of like so many other books. It's the same story, but as adults, it has so much more significance, Uh, having become adults (laughs) since Sunday school. And this has some unique features that make it unlike any other book in the Bible. Uh, Its introduction is uh, quite dramatic. And I'd like to begin by reading the first nine verses. That'll be our portion for today. And then we'll work through that, make some application, and then we'll be on our way. But this is verse 1. Chapter 1, the Old Testament book of Esther. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones." Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. This is God's Word. Those who have ears to hear, let us hear and let us pray. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for another Sunday, another day to gather together as your sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters. Lord, we ask that you open to us the mystery of your word, that we would understand it, that we would obey it, Lord, that we would tell it to others. We thank you for our time in your house on your day. We ask all this in your strong name. Amen. Well, Wednesday night we had somewhat of an introduction to Esther, and we went through some things that uh, I had planned not to necessarily mention uh, during Sunday morning. It's kind of different. One's, one's more of a study, the other's more of a sermon. Uh, but just to give some context as to where this book fits in the other 65 books of the Bible, this is one of the 12 books of history. If you just work your way through your books of the Bible, you've got the first five, which are the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But then you get into the historical books. You get into uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther is the last, the 12th of the 12 historical books. And the history that those 12 books are telling is the history from the conquest of the land of Israel. Remember, it was the promised land. And after Moses had died, he gives power over to Joshua, and they are to go take possession of the promised land. And they were fraught with uh, enemies and disasters, successes, failures, uh, lots of action and adventure. Book of Judges, the same thing, but much darker. You get to Ruth, it's this beautiful story of romance, and then you get into these listing books that list out all the kings and what they did, and what was not said is also said in the book of the Chronicles, and it kind of sounds repetitive, but then you get down to the end where the kingdom's been split, there's been more bad kings than good kings, and first, the northern tribes are destroyed by Assyria, and then second... The southern tribes are destroyed by Babylon, and they're all dispersed. The the buildings are destroyed. The wall is torn down. And you read in Ezra and Nehemiah the return of those people back to the land, most of them, in two different waves. Nehemiah about rebuilding the wall. Ezra more about restoring the spiritual substance of the people and gathering them together and opening the book from a box that sounds a lot like a pulpit. Um, Think about COVID that lasted for 70 years and no one saw each other and no one went to church and no one sang the hymns, ate the diet they were supposed to eat. Then they come back and all of it's back in place as they rebuild. Well, there was one group of people, at least, that never came back. They settled in Persia, which was taken over by, Persia took over from Babylon. Esther's the story of the people who didn't return. It was a generation later. And think about that. You know nothing of that culture. You were born in a foreign culture. So there's a lot to think about and try to put our shoes and our feet in the shoes of these people here. So there's a couple of rules we're going to have. These are ground rules. Uh, Sometimes it's helpful uh, in referring back to, remember we talked about this. One, 
we are going to beware of moralizing from this book. Because that can get you into the ditch. Not the ditch of ruin, but the ditch in not using this book for the reason it was written. And when I say we're not going to moralize, that is because it's very tempting to do one of two things when we read the contents of this book. One would be to cheer when we see what looks like courage or what looks like uh, self-sacrifice or to boo when we see certain things like self-service or cowardice. Um, The reason why we're going to try not to do that is because the author doesn't in the slightest give us the invitation. It makes no moral judgment on any of what we see in this book. This is kind of like the Wild West of exile. And there's a lot of things that are going to go on that we just can't really square with what we know of morality in Scripture. Why would she do that? Why would he do that? The book doesn't say he should or he shouldn't have. So I'll make notes to that when we get to certain places, but that's going to be one thing we're going to keep an eye on. Second of all, we're very much going to look for Jesus in this book, even though it's hundreds of years before he will be born into the world by the Virgin Mary, as prophesied. But this book is pointing toward Jesus, as all the other books of the Bible are either pointing to, uh, explaining, or pointing back to Jesus. So this is history, one of the twelve historical books, but it's also a story, it's narrative, And all good stories and narratives have four ingredients. They have an introduction and conclusion. We'll look at the introduction today. And then in the middle there is conflict and resolution. We need an introduction before we can understand the conflict. We'll have to understand the conflict before we can see it resolved. And then when it's resolved there'll be a conclusion. But today is introduction day. And hopefully it's not boring as many introductions can be. I kind of gave more of the boring stuff on Wednesday, but it seemed not to put anyone to sleep, at least the ones who had their screen on, where I could (laughs) monitor the situation. All right, the book covers about 10 years, and quite a bit of space and time exists between the major events as the story is told. And just like any good story or movie you watch, there are times when the story speeds up to cover a lot of time or it slows down to cover maybe a moment or two. You might even watch if you're one of these types that analyzes the movies rather than just being drawn into them. A lot of times the camera will focus in real tight on something in slow motion when you're looking at something very important. Uh, Let's pick on C.S. Lewis again, the, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe episode when Lucy's approaching that wardrobe. All the kids have been playing, a lot of noise, moving around real fast, and then very slow, because she's just about to open the door to another world. Well, there are times in this book where it slows down, but then there are other times you read a few lines and you just skipped years. That's what's going to go on in the first two chapters. They cover about four years. By the time you get to chapter 4, you've gone nine years. 
But then when you read 5, 6, and 7, that's three chapters only cover two days. There's a lot of significance going on in those three chapters. Chapters 1 and 2 serve as the introduction. We're going to be introduced to the players. You've you got to know the players before you can understand the game. So that's what takes place here. And basically, we're not even going to get to that part with these first nine verses. The first nine verses are really an introduction for the introduction. It's basically just a backdrop, a setting. Uh, very dramatically, the first words, now in the days of Ahasuerus. So that's where this begins. As God wrote this for us, he's the first one chosen to introduce. Um, let's start reading. Actually, let me read you one more line in my notes. First nine verses, what we read this morning, are the introduction to the introduction. But here's what I forgot. This is all about painting the picture of power. That's what you're meant to understand by what we already read. We'll look through pieces of it. But if anyone has ever shown off in the pages of Scripture, look at me and look what I have and look who I am. We just read through it. Um, I'll leave it at that. Let me give you some points here. There'll be four of them. And all of them have to do with what I'm going to call the empire of the world. And the reason why we're going to call it the empire of the world is because really there's this explanation, description right here in the first nine verses is, is going to serve as this backdrop against all the other things that are not really said. Um, the empire of the world has changed over time. There have been different emperors, but it's always the same theme. If we go back to the beginning, in the beginning... Uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that's a massive backdrop. God is what's being viewed. And then you've got this wondrous creation. But you don't get very far before men start building things and creating their own backdrop. And earliest world empire would have been Egypt, right? Uh, the movie Prince of Egypt. And then Joseph... Uh, sold by his brothers, becomes prime minister of Egypt. But Egypt really fed the rest of the known world during the period of famine. Well, who, who destroyed the Egyptians? Well, different ways at different times. It kind of just kind of disappeared off the uh, pages of history. But after that, you've, you've got the Assyrian Empire. You remember that? And that's who carted off the northern tribes. Then you've got the Babylonian Empire, that's who carted off the southern tribes. It's going to be Persia that conquers Babylon. That's who we're reading about here. And then while we're reading, but behind the scenes, not mentioned here, is Persia's battles with Greece. Remember that fella, Alexander the Great? Well, that wiped out Babylon. And then Rome wiped out Greece. And then Rome lasted a long time and seemed to implode. Then you've got the British Empire. Then you've got the American Empire, though no one would ever call it that. And then there may be a Chinese Empire. Who knows? There will always be the empire of the world. And it will always be an ungodly empire. And until the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes to take what's ultimately His, along with His bride, the Bride of Christ... This will always exist. And it's 
uncanny the way it always looks the same. When men have power, they act like this. So let's go through a piece of it. Point number one, the empire of the world is inescapable. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. That's a big deal. If you looked at Egypt's empire, it's like this. Then Assyria, a little bigger. Babylon, a little bigger than that. Persian, way bigger than all of them even put together. Rome would get bigger than that. But the story of Esther begins with the most powerful man in the world. And for the most part, I think I'm going to refer to him as Xerxes. It's a little easier to say than Ahasuerus or Ahasuerus. Can't even pronounce the way that uh, Logos said it when I pushed the little microphone button, which is a, a pastor's cheat button to figure out how to say names before he has to do them in public when nobody in the room knows how it's supposed to be said. Xerxes, that's, that's in all the history books. That would be the Greek rendering of this man's name. Um, he was the grandson of Cyrus. Cyrus was the one who let the Jews go back home. He was the first king of the Medo-Persian Empire. This is Daniel chapter 5 when the writing on the wall took place. And overnight, you go from a Babylonian empire to a Persian empire. Very dramatic passage of scripture. But he allowed the Jews to go home. Uh, Cyrus' son Darius, the first was Xerxes' father. There's a lot of background on this guy uh, from Herodotus. Uh, interesting, disturbing history. We don't need to know any of that. What's necessary to this story, we've already been told. The narrator tells us he ruled over 127 provinces from India to the Sudan. Now, if just... So we got a picture in our heads on a, a modern map. This would more or less include India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, parts of Greece, Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, and Sudan. That's a bunch of dirt. And this man controls it all. This would be the first world superpower as far as the historians would tell us. When we say, though, that this empire of the world is inescapable, what we mean is this. If you were alive at the time, Xerxes was your king. Except for parts of Greece, which are gaining power and would take control in short order, that's about the only ones who weren't under his authority. Uh, no one had discovered the new world yet. People didn't live in Raleigh. Raleigh didn't exist. Or Detroit or San Francisco or, or any of those things. Um, and as far as the picture of the empire of the world as the antithesis of the empire or the kingdom of heaven... It's always inescapable. The empire of the world is controlled by the prince of the power of the air. And his jurisdiction is global. As a Christian, we can't escape this. As Christians, we always have something in common with Esther. We live in a foreign land until the Lord returns. So number two, the empire of the world is invincible to an extent. 
That's what is meant to be understood in these nine verses. Uh, verse 2, in those days when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne, that's meant to be a descriptor of, of great power. Historians tell us if you sat on that throne, you died. If you stepped on the carpet in front of that throne, you died. Uh, there's a lot of things you could do to die, and it was an awful way to die. But this is in Susa, the citadel, third year of his reign, and this feast for officials, the army of Persia and Media, nobles, governors of the provinces before him. Um, so the empire was actually rotated uh, among different cities. Uh, and this happened to be the summer location. So this guy not only has all this stuff here, he's got a backup palace. He's got a backup Washington, D.C. for when the weather's better there, um, which is what he does. This is mentioned in Daniel. Uh, Nehemiah was cupbearer to Xerxes' son Artaxerxes in Susa, other books. But listen to the references of power here. This is what we're supposed to pick up on. Sat on his royal throne... The third year of his reign, verse 1, it already talked about his reign. Gave a feast for all his officials. Uh, army folks were there, nobles, governors. All the who's who were there. Powerful people gathered under the most powerful man on the planet. In other words, this is it. This is the place. This is the man. The man that gives orders to the people who give orders. This is one fat concentration of, of power. Uh, still, if you want to mark it in your mind, any modern-day equivalents, think of the Kremlin in Moscow rather than uh, the Vatican in, in Rome. This is a military-run government more so than a religious-run government. For us, it'd be adding the White House, Congress, Pentagon, FBI, CIA, Langley, Supreme Court, all in one place, and then just having them move different places at different times of the year. So the point... Of those handful of verses, the story of Esther is set against the backdrop of absolute, unchecked, unquestioned, undivided power. A Jewish girl, orphaned, a nobody, foreigner in her land, the offspring of people who were slaves carried away from what they had, defeated militarily. She's going to change the course of events by asking for a concession. In the presence of a guy, if he didn't ask that you come and didn't like that you did, then you're dead. So th th these are the contrasts we're looking at. This guy and Esther. It's a big, big contrast meant for effect. Number three, the empire of the world is visually stunning. We've learned about his power. Now, now he's going to really start getting fancy. Verse 4, when he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, comma, 180 days. Now, how long is 180 days, roughly? That's six months. That's one long party. I don't know that I could take six hours of a party. A party for me is alone in a kayak with my phone turned off. This is something that's totally foreign to me. Now, it makes sense that uh, 
the 180 days were to allow the officials from all those provinces over a large area of the map to be able to come for their turn rather than everybody there for a length of six months. That would make sense. It's not what we're told, though. And you don't really necessarily have to be impressed by all this, but the description is meant to make you take a step back and, and think, my goodness, that's, that's something. This is unprecedented. Solomon didn't throw parties like this. Six months, the king displayed or showcased the massive wealth of his kingdom, and he wanted everyone to see it. That was the point. This is for optics. The length of time, again, to make everybody able to come, didn't matter who you were, though, because after the six-month party, there was a week-long party for everyone else. It was all the brass to begin with, and then it was everybody. And it was a little different, great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. That was after the 180 days were completed. So it didn't matter who you were, uh, free admission to the Biltmore. You just show up, and you get fed for a week. Uh, Seems to be that's how it worked. He wanted them to see his garden, walk on his floors, drink his wine. But most importantly, he wants everyone to know who takes care of them. And that's what's not said in this book, but the historians tell us he's ramping up for an attack on Greece, ultimately, which he will lose. But in order to do that, he needs to convince his kingdom that he will take care of them. This will work. We're... We're not going to lose. Um, So the empire of the world deals in the visual. To arrest your attention with the attractiveness and impressiveness of its wealth. When you say that's the same for now, you turn on the television. You ever turn it off because you're just bored with all the intellectual and, and, and knowledge-based learning that, that, that the entertainment industry wants to help you broaden your thinking. and No, they just want you to gawk at images of beauty, excess, ridiculous. It's the same thing. It works in the realm of the visual. And there's more. He's not done yet. Look at verse 6. Then there were white cotton curtains, white cotton out in the garden. wonder how often they got changed. They wouldn't stay white. But then there's violet hangings fastened with cords of linen and purple. That just to us would probably mean a color. I see some purple in the room this morning. You know how many little tiny snails get smushed to make a small piece of purple cloth in this period of time? And how expensive that was. Unless you were royalty, you didn't have it. Because you couldn't afford it. Which gives us some insight into Lydia, a seller of purple. But they would boil these things down. It was supposed to smell terrible. And they weren't even purple until you cooked them the right way. But when it was done, there was nothing like it. Very costly. Well, this is outside in his garden on silver rods and marble pillars. And also, anybody have a couch made out of gold or silver? And there's more than one of them. And I'm thinking, that would be hard, wouldn't it? Maybe it's got pillows on it to help it not be 
what sounds very uncomfortable. But then the pavement is mosaic of porphyry. I had to look that up, but I found out I knew what it was. That is a kind of a maroon colored, dark red to dark purple quartz with like glitter in it. My kids for the last few Christmases have had on their list these uh, archaeology kits where it's full of pieces of rock and quartz and whatever else. And they give you a brush and a little scraper tool and a little wooden mallet that you should use sparingly or it's all over in about 10 minutes. And you dig these things out. Maybe little fossilized bugs, but some of these rocks as well. And we've got some of, of, some of that, this porphyry lying around the house. It is pretty cool looking. They made the floor out of that. They'd make statues with it. But in addition to that, there's more marble. And then mother of pearl. You know what mother of pearl is. That's not cheap either. That's what the stuff that makes a piece of sand into a pearl. But it lines the inside of uh, the clams or the abalone. It's very beautiful. Well, they've got that in the floor too. To walk on. Most of us keep that in a jewelry drawer, right? Precious stones. That's more. And then verse 7 is where it seems like things go off the rails, doesn't it? Drinks were served in golden vessels. So you'd probably get handed a glass that's worth more than you're ever making in your life for some of these people. Vessels of different kinds and the royal wine. There's, there's at least two different kinds of wine. One of them's Xerxes' royal collection and then there's whatever else. Lavished according to the bounty of the king. So it, it never stops flowing. Drinking was according to this edict. And we'll talk about this later. There, there's an edict here. And this is according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. And once you put in the law, you can't change it. We'll learn that later. The edict was there's no compulsion. We're going to make a rule to tell you there's no rule regarding the wine. You do what you want to do for seven days. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. You keep filling it as they keep emptying it. It's up to them. So again, a description verbally of a visual excess to leave you with a sense of wonder. Nothing in the pages of Scripture that even gets close to this except for maybe Solomon's temple, but not the party. There's also this illusion of freedom in the empire of the world. It's kind of like Outback Steakhouse. No rules. Just right. You remember those ads? That made me never want to go. I never want to eat where somebody else fixes my food and there's no rules. <laughs> That's a bad deal. Well, in, in this case, it has the idea there's no rules. You, you, it's an open bar. And everybody probably knows someone who thought it'd be a good idea to have an open bar at their wedding. And then they didn't. After things were said and then things were done and then the bride's crying and the mother of the bride's in the car and the father of the bride's probably hitting someone repeatedly. It, it just it goes crazy, doesn't it? But that seems to be you do what you want. But it's not, because we all know if we've got any sense, there's no such thing as no rules, ever, 
anywhere. There's a law for everything, and we'll learn that, that this place had so many rules, nobody could keep up with them. And the first rule we're going to read of is when Vashti says, I'm not coming to your stupid party. And then he gets together with his guys, Xerxes that is, and they publish abroad. Every wife has to do exactly what their husband says. Which you would think, well, power to the men. No. It's a all points bulletin. This guy's a joke. He wants respect from his wife, but it's obvious he's not at all respectable. Or else there wouldn't be a problem. So basically it's a world, a rule to tell the kingdom, your king is an idiot. That's just the beginning. It goes on and on. They, power makes its own rules in the empire of the world. It always does. Give a guy some power, he'll start making some rules. And most of the time, they favor him and his buddies and not the folks that actually pull the cart he's riding on. So, the empire of the world, there is no freedom, but what a party. That's basically these verses here. It doesn't matter. We can drink whatever we want, so who cares? First, or point four, the empire of the world is desirable. And this is where, sitting in church, listening to the preacher, it's easy to go, yeah, what a stupid party. But if you got an invitation, I mean, if you'd go see the Biltmore, you'd go see Xerxes' palace in the citadel of Susa, wouldn't you? We probably just need to admit that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? If it looks as if Xerxes wants me somewhere, I might want to be there just to see what it looks like. It's desirable. Everything about the empire of the world sparkles on the surface. It sure does here. And if you throw in your lot with the empire, you can hope to participate in some of its glory. You get an opportunity to see how high you can climb. Maybe even its wealth. You could even be blessed with the king's generosity. Of course, you'll have to sign at the bottom. You'll have to agree with the way he sees things. You'll have to share his values. You'll have to go along with the rules that power makes for itself. And then there's verse 9, which is kind of a connective verse. seems tagged on here, but it sure helps us in the next paragraph. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to the king Ahasuerus. So this is, an, this is a men's only party, the 180 days. The women are somewhere else. Um, separate. And it's hosted by the queen. So, so far, three banquets, one for the rulers, one for the rabble, and one for the women. Why does that matter? Well, for the most part, you have to wait till next week. But what do we do with what we've got so far? This is one massive show. What do we do with this? Lengthy, detailed description, and what purpose does it serve? Well, we've already covered that it's meant to be awe-inspiring, a display of excess. But I think from the perspective of the author of this book and its location in the Bible, 
Not only are we supposed to be awed at this display of excess, I think we're also supposed to be slightly irritated, if not a little revolted, at its wastefulness. I think it's easy enough. And uh, we'll talk about this later, but there's places in the Scripture, in this book, where the uh, third-person omniscient is seen. That's where the, the narrator is giving us insight into the heads of people as they do their thing, which is basically privileged information. I don't know what's in your head. You could be thinking about where you're going to go eat, but I wouldn't know because I don't have that information. As you read this, we're going to learn about things Esther thought in her heart and Haman thought in his heart, Mordecai so God is working, and it's like we're reading seated next to uh, the God who's got his hands on all the levers as we're looking out the windows of heaven. But we need to understand this is not good. Yes, it glitters, it sparkles, it's magnificent, it's powerful. But this is godless. <coughs> So when we look at it, oh, wow, that is interesting. But at the same time, it's pointless. It's wasteful. And we'll be shifting between these two as we move along. It was all precisely on show. And two and a half millennia later, this, if you want to do that depravity check we employ from time to time, can you think of a TV show that would have to do with something like, I don't know, gathering some women together who are supposed to be really attractive and then there's one guy who's going to get the woman after a contest who would want to watch that yeah this one is a like three years then a year to run the whole thing and it's hundreds of girls and we say it's awful but then we watch it on TV. And we flip through or scroll through the goofy stuff on Facebook or stare at the tabloids while we're waiting on the guy in front of us to just get on through with his 20 items in the 10-item express lane. What I'm saying here is times have changed, but the heart never changes without God. It's the same desperately wicked who can know it heart. Here through the pages of Scripture, and right now. So again, this is the backdrop of Esther. She lives under the empirical rule of the most powerful man in the world who is known as he carries himself, excessive, indulgent, master of showmanship, propaganda, PR, without check or balance. That's how the story is set up. His empire is inescapable, invincible, visually stunning, and desirable. The world has seen nothing like it. But here's where we need to make a turn. And here's what we'll do for today. There is a higher king than Xerxes. There was a higher king than Belshazzar. There was a higher king than David or Solomon. A higher king than Adolf Hitler. He was gunning for Xerxes' job. And unless we forget that, we'll focus too much on the backdrop 
as introduced here in the first nine verses. Well, there's a backdrop where us to understand these first nine verses against. And that would be the throne of heaven on whom sits the ancient of days who we know revealed in scripture as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That man's still in charge and always will be. We've got to remember that backdrop. It'll give us context for this backdrop. And what I want to show you, and this will take a minute or two, and then we'll be done and we'll close. But as the Old Testament unfolds, there is a gradual shift from the presence of God, which is wide open in the Garden of Eden, down to, chronologically speaking, the book of Esther, who is last. It's not the last book of the New Testament as you open the pages, but chronologically it exists there right ahead of the intertestamental period of 400 years of absolute silence. So just listen. If, if, if you know your way around the scriptures, this, this, that'll help. But even if you don't, uh, this is plotting our way from the garden to the desert, basically. The sound of silence before we open our Gospels in the New Testament. The Bible opens the story. God's intimately involved and accessible to the first human beings, Adam and Eve. Walks in the garden with them in the cool of the evening. First couple can hear and understand his voice. Even after they sin, God comes looking for them, asks them what they've done, has his conversations with them, punish them for their sin, but God is present with them and unmistakably clear in what he says. Then fast forward a bit, you get to Noah building an ark or the builders of the Tower of Babel. Even when he confounds their languages, God is still involved. It's easily discernible. A little less than with Adam and Eve, but still, God's present. Then you've got Abraham. God is said to appear to Abraham. Slight change in the way we read it. But to appear means, well, if it appears, then it, it hadn't appeared. Or it was disappeared at a point, but now it appears. So he's a little bit in the background, just by virtue of the language. His appearance comes through a fire in the midst of a dream, which is slightly more remote as far as engagement than before. Then you've got the Exodus, you know, with Sinai. And Moses up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, and it looks like the top of the mountain's on fire, if you remember what it looked like in the movie, right? And when he came down, his face was white, and the people pled with him, you speak to God for us. We're afraid we're going to die. It's too much. And really, from that point on, direct communication came through God's men, or primarily the prophets, but there's no more thundering in the clouds, no pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. From this point on, prophets will be the intermediaries. No more manna, no more fantastic visible manifestations of glory, only sporadic miracles. And thus saith the Lord through the mouth of a human being. Then even the miracles become fewer and far between. Samuel's the last person to whom God said, to have been revealed. Solomon's the last person to whom God is said to have appeared. And Elijah's the last person through whom God does a public miracle. There'll be more miracles, but not public like him. And I'd say bringing down the fire of God on the altar of Mount Carmel and then 
cutting the throats of the 450 prophets of Baal was a public thing. And then the most interesting, massive change. Same guy, a little bit down the road. God declares he will no longer be found in the dramatic power like wind, earthquakes, or fire, but will be heard only in the sound of a low whisper, a still small voice. In fact, this is the last time in the Old Testament story that the text specifically says, the Lord said anything to anyone. There's plenty of, thus saith the Lord. But we don't hear how he says that to them. hundred years later, Hezekiah asked for a miracle and turned the sun back. And he got it. And then the last instance of an angel was when the Assyrian troops overnight were killed in order to deliver Jerusalem. But all that's left after this is the presence of God in the temple in the form of the Shekinah glory over the Ark of the Covenant. And then the building is destroyed by the Babylonians. One last mention of fire, but it's not the fire of God's presence, but the fire of His judgment. And Ezekiel notes that His glory departs. And as the record goes, it comes up off the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant where the cherubim's wings are outstretched. And down through the Kidron Valley, up the other side, and out of view. And that's the end of that. The voice of the Lord is gone. And then as far as the exile or post-exilic eras, after they'd been carted off to Assyria and Babylon, Jerusalem is, is desolate, as the prophets tell us. The whole story has a completely different tone. In Ezra and Nehemiah, there are no miracles, no angels, no divine manifestations, no record that God spoke directly to anyone and then you have the book of Esther standing at the end of that whole narrative where God is never mentioned once in the whole text. God's people aren't even saying God's name. That's how silent it gets. In fact, Esther almost didn't make the cut. There were lots of men who didn't think Esther should be in your Bible because it doesn't mention God. It's basically, for all intents and purposes, a secular historical peace having to do with God's covenant people but long after it looks like he has deserted them completely and totally. But is that the way it really is? Or is that just the way it looks on the surface? Has God left his people? Promised he wouldn't. Now we could go into how many times in say the Psalms and in some of the prophets, God has specifically said through them, I will hide my face from them if they don't repent. They hadn't repented, and these folks haven't even returned when they got the green light to do it. Should we applaud? Should we boo that they didn't go back and this is even happening? Again, we resist that temptation. But what we've got here in the title of this series is called The Unseen God. He's there, but he's not seen on the surface. And that's a title that a lot of folks use if they actually teach through Esther verse by verse. Kind of hard to find some of those series. Not a lot of people take on the task. We still know God is at work. question is why 
the disappearance from view. And we could address that theologically. One is for sin. Uh, How many times did God say, I won't tolerate this? How many times do we see that God actually takes sin seriously? Of course, this is part of the problem. But then you've also got grace on the other side. He is waiting for the fullness of time. Not a lot different than such a time as this. Well, it's not time yet. So he's waiting, and that's grace. But maybe the better question for this, and maybe it'll help us with ours, how did they, those in the Old Testament, even those post-exilic, still living away from the promised land, who struggled and grappled with the hiddenness of God, how did they navigate that struggle? Well, we'll see how they did. And we'll see Mordecai telling this young girl, his adopted daughter, if you don't help and you're in the position to, God will help us some other way. Because Mordecai obviously believes that God keeps his promises. He's not slack concerning his promises. So how did they do that? Well, they did it the same way. We learned this uh, first of the year with our study in Habakkuk. How shall the just live? By faith. What do you hang your faith on? Well, promises passed. We know there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and open the Red Sea and all these other things. And there are promises into the future of a deliverer, a messiah, That's how they did it. And then 400 years later, right on time, though generations and generations and generations and generations died without seeing it. And you got John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan pointing a finger to the top of his lungs. He introduces the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. All the stuff we see in the first nine verses to undo the empire of the world and put it back in the garden before a bite of forbidden fruit to where the relationship is as it was supposed to be. So how do we lay hold on that? Well, we look back, but it's still the same thing. What has been said or done, and we've got much more of a massive understanding of God's revelation standing here than standing in Xerxes' garden party. But still, it's the same thing. The just live by faith, understanding what has been said and looking forward to what has been promised. That's how we make sense of a world in which God seems to be absent so much of the time. We talked about this Wednesday. It'll be a big point, perhaps next week too. I think that more secular people could have um, a better entry point into the Scriptures through perhaps Esther being, you know, they're not a beauty queen or have been enrolled in a beauty contest or an orphan, but they live in a world where it's not often that God just writes stuff in the sky or uh, shows up in flaming fire or uh, comes in the flesh, heals people. We live in the same type of period where God's all but silent. If you're talking about eyes and ears and your senses... But then again, if you know him, on this side of the cross, as John had said, the Word was with God, 
was God. Without him was nothing made that was made. Came, took on flesh, dwelt with us to reveal the Father. And Jesus, you basically have God with us. To where the only meaningful way to understand God or even this book is not looking at miracles displayed before your eyes, but understanding what had happened in history past. Jesus is the explanation of God. So if we want to ask ourselves the question of how this fits with us, how about your life? We could talk about other people's lives. We could talk about America and how it looks like Persia. And they drank a lot in Persia. They drink a lot in America. We could just have a whole heyday. And we'll have points along the way how it seems to match up. But let's just talk about you. If your life was put in print and stuck somewhere in here in the Bible, would we call that book, series, The Unseen God? Do you live as though he doesn't exist? You know who he is. You know the stories, like Mordecai and Esther did. But until it really comes down to crunch time, she seems to be enjoying every bit of that contest. Though she would be way down on Vegas odds as to who's going to get the crown. Mordecai's awful quiet. Now, he's obstinate when he won't bow before Haman, but that, that's basically like standing up when Hail to the Chief plays. It's not going to violate anything different than with Daniel. The question is, in this age where God seems to be behind the scenes or off stage, are we happy to live that way? Or has Jesus become for us the very presence of God, such that we make the decisions of our life based on it? We're living in the wrong kingdom. We're aliens. We're not home in the world, not of it, on and on and on. But this is going to be a great book for us to analyze. How comfortable are we in Persia or America? We can get very comfortable. We could call it a defense mechanism. We could call it uh, situational ethics. We could call it... There's lots of things we could call it. But that's a good question. God with us. Jesus was sent to show us the Father. Has Jesus become the very presence of God? Or do we live in a virtual period of the unseen God? With that said, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for... An introduction to Esther. We thank you for an over-the-top description of one man's power who ruled the entire known world at the time. Lord, we read in Scripture where you move kings like you reroute creeks of water. Lord, that's nothing compared to you. This is your world. We've already sung about it this morning. And Lord, we're going to sing again about how we need you all the time to guide us, to help us with our decisions, but most of all, to live like you, to look like you, and to point others to you, to be satisfied in you, to not be lured away 
And certainly not to become part of the empire of the world. You saved us out of that. We're dead to that because of your grace. Lord, set up the scaffold and teach us over the next few weeks what we can learn from this story so that we'll be more like you, less like ourselves, and more useful to your kingdom. I ask all this in your precious name. Amen.